0: The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views or positions of the Frankenmuth Historical Association. Some episodes may contain subjects that are uncomfortable for some listeners. Listener discretion is advised.
1: Hello and guten tag, and welcome to Historians in Lederhosen. I'm Garrett. I'm Nathan. And
0: I'm Malcolm. We are three historians from the Frankenmuth Historical Association, located in Frankenmuth, Michigan. The association owns and operates a seven-gallery museum, a historical log house, fisher hall and a collection of over thirty thousand artifacts
2: check those out at frankmuthmuseum.org or right on our facebook page at frankmuth historical museum
1: this podcast will tell the stories of michigan's little bavaria to the real bavaria and anything in between be sure to tune in every other week and listen to the three of us and our guests as we dive into the wide world of history auf Wiedersehen
0: Alright, welcome back with another episode. I'm here with my friends Garrett and Nathan, my fellow historians in Hosen. If you like this podcast, please support us by giving us a follow, a like, and a rating. All of it helps to support the podcast and enables us to create more and better episodes every time um, so that we can bring you more episodes. You know, that's what this is all about, is just doing it so we can do more of it. <laughs> that's the only
1: point. To <laughs> keep <laughs> um, me employed.
0: Yeah, you know, keep you... Uh, Without pay. Un- yeah, <laughs> keep me unemployed. Garrett continues to need uh credit. <laughs> 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 he will forever be an undergrad. So let's keep getting him the credit he so deserves and needs. So let's dive right into this episode. And I'm actually gonna just start everything off with a segment and then we will segue Ooh. into our conversation today. So we're gonna play Boom. a game of who am I? Alright, we've done this segment before, you know the rules. I will read out a series of statements about a historical figure this time, starting vague and getting more obvious. And it is your job to try and guess who I am talking about. I'll give you a brief chance before each statement if you'd like to make a guess. But other than that, let's dive right in. So, the person you are trying to guess today is a historical figure, um, which I realize is pretty broad, but I do know for a a reasonable fact That you have at least heard of this person. So I don't think uh, this is going to be too, too out there. But are you guys ready? Ready. ready. Okay. So statement number one I was born in Atchison, Kansas on July 24th, 1897. Okay. Okay. Statement number two I don't like coffee or tea. I prefer hot chocolate.
1: Is this the, the conductor from the Polar Express? <laughs> <laughs>
0: That's a good guess, but no. Um, during World War I, I became a nurse's aide in Toronto, Canada to tend to wounded soldiers. I'm still pretty broad. Okay, we'll start narrowing it down a little bit. I took my first flying lesson on January 3rd, 1921. Okay. While living in while living in Boston. I wrote articles promoting flying in the local newspaper. My plane was a bright yellow uh, Kinner Airster that I nicknamed the Canary. Amelia Earhart? Yes, it is Amelia Amelia Earhart. I did have
2: it too, two guesses ago. I should have guessed Ah, sorry about that.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's Amelia Earhart. So uh, to round it off, I became known as Lady Lindy after my first flight across the Atlantic I was the first woman and the second person to fly solo across the Atlantic. I was the first person to fly solo across the Pacific. And finally, this was going to be the the big giveaway. My death is unknown. I disappeared in 1937. Mm -hmm, mm
1: -hmm. (laughs) I was, um, this is embarrassing, but I thought of Charles Lindbergh. That was because I had thought about people who flew and like (laughs) the time period. (laughs) And then I forgot who was Charles Lindbergh. And I don't even know the answer to that question.
0: Okay, well thanks for that contribution. (laughs) Way (laughs) off. Way (laughs) off. All right. Well, that was a lot of fun. Um, I do really love that segment, uh, especially when I don't have to do any of the guessing. I just have (laughs) uh, all the knowledge. So today I want to chat about historical figures that we admire. Uh, I think Amelia Earhart is a great example because she's truly kind of a pioneer of feminism and equality in the workplace and just achieving really incredible things. And she left quite uh, an incredible legacy. So um, I've asked you both to come prepared with information and just uh, be able to chat about two historical figures that you admire or find interesting. Uh, We're going to talk about one that is Frankenmuth-related, and then we're going to talk about uh, one from kind of anywhere in the world. Um, Pretty, pretty broad. So let's dive right in. So, uh, Garrett, why don't we start with you? And you can... Let's start with our... Do you want to do FHA, go around the circle, and then we'll do world, world. go around the circle? Okay, so let's go. Garrett, then Nathan, and myself, we'll start with the FHA figure. So, Garrett, who did you bring for us today?
1: So, I'm going to start talking about Lorna Roth. So I discovered the story of Lorna Roth when I first started as an intern here, and I was helping out with the uh, Great Lakes State Goes to War exhibit about World War II. Um, So Lorna Roth was a Frankenmuth native. She ended up going to the Saginaw General Hospital Nursing School in the 30s, where she graduated. I think it was 1936. Um, She shortly after enlisted in the U.S. Air Force, and she was sent to Texas. Um, where she served at a, uh, air force hospital there. And then she, um, she was deployed during world war two to India and, um, ended up becoming the head nurse of an a thousand bed, um, army ground force hospital in India. And, um, through her letters, we can see a much different side of World War II. Much, much of the like narrative on World War II is mostly focused on the European theater, and then at like in a smaller way, the Pacific theater, because that was really where the the Americans um, came to play. But I never really thought about um, how wide like the world, the Second World War was, until I realized that she was stationed for the almost, I think she came back in the fort like at the end of the war, but she spent the entire time that she was deployed in India. And it just, that's just something I never really realized was part wow. of world war two, mm-hmm. but it she, it was she a truly, world war, <laughs> yeah, really it was. Um, she truly was one of the most inspiring women I've, I've ever read about. And just, it's an interesting story. Very cool. Very cool.
2: Yeah. And her story, like probably all three that we're going to share here. I mean, just being a local story that we have is pretty impressive, you know, think mm-hmm. of, many other local stories like her are out there and exist and those that we don't even know about, right? Mm -hmm. Because we don't have an artifact or something related to them. So, oh, great, great story.
0: Yeah. And Nathan, correct me if I'm wrong, but you can learn a little bit about her if you come to the FHA and go through our exhibits, right? Yeah. There's some information on her in the permanent gallery.
2: Yep. You sure can. We have a whole gallery dedicated to uh, to both World Wars um, and Lorna Roth's story is featured in there. So that was actually kind of thanks to some research that Garrett did. Oh,
0: look saying.
1: at that. Look at that. Look at the unpaid intern contributing. Yeah, contributing <laughs> at
0: least in
2: a little way. So
0: you don't need to be paid. You got this kind of recognition. <laughs> <laughs> Ex- re- paid in exposure, as we like to say. <laughs> a good resume builder. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We'll stop beating up on Garrett. Ah, Nathan, who did you bring today as a historical figure that you want to talk about from Frankenmuth?
2: So I picked a little more recent figure. Um, his name is Herman Zender. Uh, he was born and raised here in Frankenmuth, uh, graduated from Concordia Theological Seminary in St. Louis, Missouri, and he bounced around a bit as a pastor, um, eventually ending up at Zion Lutheran Church in Bay City. Um he was extremely instrumental in uncovering Frankmuth's history, especially its early history, like the first settlers that came in 1845. He actually traveled to Germany to conduct his own archival research, and he also conducted his own oral histories, as we, as we would say today, or interviews, um, with some locals here in Frankenmuth. And... He actually explored a couple different archives in Germany, one of them focusing on Wilhelm Lehi, and he founded some previously untouched historical materials, at least that's what he writes about, um, such as letters, documents, pamphlets, and books related to Frankenmuth's founding. So all of this correspondence would have been directly with Wilhelm Leahy and the first settlers. Um, so that's that's pretty impressive, and it's a it's a pretty uh, mm-hmm. awesome collection of artifacts that we have thanks to him. Um and so all of these were also in German. so he had to undertake uh, the the tough task of translating a lot of these. Um, yeah, yeah. That's so awesome. that in and of itself is an extremely um, time consuming task, right? And so, he ended up publishing his findings into a book called Teach My People the Truth. This was published in 1970, just self-published. And we lovingly refer to that book um, here at the FHA as kind of the Bible of Frank Muth's history because it's (laughs) one of the earliest... not just the earliest, but one of the more comprehensive histories of Frankenmuth um, that's Mm -hmm. in existence.
0: And it makes a ton of reference to things that we have in the collection at the FHA too. So it's a really good first stop, I think, for a lot of us. Like anytime we have to research anything for an exhibit or for a program or just Mm -hmm. do some background
2: research, you're going to reach for that book first, you know. No doubt, no doubt. And so in his own words, um, kind of talking about his inspiration for conducting this research and writing this book, right? He writes, quote, I always had the feeling that the whole truth had not been told. The fathers and founders of Frank Muth were given the status of saints. From what I had heard and read, they didn't quite seem to have been real living people. And I wanted to know the truth, end quote. So essentially what he found is that the settlers, I mean, unsurprisingly, right? But he made them come to life as like real people with real struggles and, that had real confrontations with each other. So we actually come to find out through all of his research that the first settlers actually, there was a some confrontation between them and the pastor, August Kramer, um, once he married um, a woman on board the Caroline. And so th- there's a lot of fascinating aspects to Herman Zender and especially his research, but the FHA would not be um, in the... Realm it's in today, or wouldn't be the, the status it is today um, without his help and without some of that early research. So, Fantastic. Herman Zender is my now.
0: Favorite. Obviously, the Zender name has a pretty big presence here in Frankmuth. Any relation thereof <laughs> to the modern, like Zenders?
2: I have. I would have to go back and look at that. I'm not 100 percent okay. sure to be honest. Um, and Sorry people, not to
0: put you on the spot. No, it's no, no. Like so, some people just, are
2: probably shaking their fist at the podcast right now. Like, that's oh, he my uncle. Know? That's my <laughs> uncle. <laughs> um, no, I, I would guess that there, there has to be mm-hmm. some sort of relation with a lot of those zenders that people know nowadays. But I would have to go back and look at some of that lineage. Myself, it's
1: really, so. it's really kind of fascinating because he, his full time job was being a pastor, and then he just did all of this on his own. And it's, it's just a really it's really cool and it kind of shows just the normal person that like maybe you could start this journey trying to figure out the answer for one question about your own hometown and then next thing you know you publish like a 200 page book
0: yeah absolutely i mean all history just starts with curiosity i think like all good research just starts with curiosity and the need to answer a question are these larger than life figures truly that or is there more under the surface you know um i think that's really great thanks for sharing that nathan yeah All right, well, I'm going to uh, share my FHA person. Uh, So I'm going to go all the way back to the beginning, one of the original 15 settlers that we like to talk about. So this is someone that uh, Herman Zender would have actually probably researched. Uh, So today I'm gonna talk about Anna Margarita, our Pickleman. I just love the last name Pickle Man. Like I, I would imagine, you know how there's like kind of that saying that like, you know, last names were like jobs for the longest mm-hmm. time. So I just imagined that like there was this guy who's like, oh, it's the Pickle Man. Like, <laughs> and he just like walked from town to town or down Main Street. Like I got pickles. And they're like, oh, it's the Pickle Man. Let's go get our pickles. So
2: we um, only have cucumbers.
0: <laughs> Give him your cucumbers. He will return as the Pickle Man. <laughs> um, wow. So that was nice, nice, uh, nice detour. <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) All right. So a little bit more about Anna. Uh, So Anna was born in 1822 in Germany. She grew up as an orphan until she was about 15. And then she lived in the house of Reverend Wilhelm Lohi, where she learned to become a midwife and a nurse. And she, of course, studied at the Lohi Institute, which was a school that uh, if you uh, listen to our previous episode on Lohi, then um, there's a lot about uh, kind of the schools he set up and what they were doing there. So go check that out. Anna was a, an original settler settler of Frankenmuth. Uh, she came across obviously on the Caroline, as we've mentioned before, in 1845. She married Johann George Pickelman during the visit, so she was one of these uh, one of the many settlers that ended up uh, marrying each other while on the Caroline on the way over. She had a very important role during the initial years of Frankenmuth's genesis. Uh, she was a midwife, and her claim to fame really is that she successfully delivered eight hundred babies supposedly never losing a single mother which that's insane can you imagine i mean like <laughs>
2: in the mid 1800s yeah do that? yeah no Let
0: alone um, today yeah <laughs> i mean no akg no no monitors no nothing like no uh um oh, my mind's blanking the you know the goop that they put on the belly and then they used to oh like ultrasound ultrasound yeah no ultrasound no nothing um
1: no epidural. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's wild because in my in my Jacksonian era history class this semester, we were talking about like the importance of midwives in mm-hmm. rural communities, and like some of the most comprehensive history about um, midwives comes from a late eighteenth century woman in southeastern Maine. Um, but she wrote a very like detailed diary about how she would just be called at random points in the day get home and then be called to another like part of the community so it's just Mm -hmm. like it shows how important not only in just delivering babies but these were doctors were not widespread she was kind of the person that was helping out everyone with any ailment they had
0: and you make a great point too like we have the kind of the perception now that like you have to go to the hospital to have a baby but like this job was was a house call job like she had to run to the house when it was time at a moment's notice to, to help these women. So yeah, to be able to uh, deliver 800 babies successfully and uh, supposedly never losing a mother is pretty, pretty phenomenal. Now, sadly she did lose one child of her own. Um, although she had many children, she did lose one child of her own uh, during childbirth. And that uh, child actually became the first uh, one to be buried at St. Lawrence cemetery, which is kind of an interesting fact. Um, she herself, uh, her husband died. Uh, so Johann uh, George Pickelman died. And about 13 years later, she remarried to George Johann List. Or, uh, sorry, Johann George List. I flipped those around there. Uh, so, yeah, she remarried uh, to a man named Johann George List. And then in total, she had about 10 children and oversaw the delivery of 61. Of sixty-two of her grandchildren, yeah. so pretty, uh, pretty
1: incredible. In Imagine terms of- being the sixty-second and just getting like bullied by your cousins. You're like, you're the only one that grandma didn't deliver
0: because <laughs> <laughs> she didn't like you. You weren't
1: <laughs> special enough.
0: She was tired. <laughs> uh, but yeah, just I mean, just incredible. I mean, think about that. I mean, just mm-hmm. being able to have that many children and oversee the, the birth of that many children. I mean, what a special thing to be able to do. I yeah, think it's just I mean. Incredible. Incredible.
2: We didn't even talk about like infant mortality rates too. Like, I mm-hmm. mean, you're talking as high as like 40, 50% in some yeah. places. Oh like, yeah. That's insane. 800. And,
0: and you're thinking about this too. This is like Michigan, the wilderness. Like there's mm-hmm. very little modern infrastructure uh, for, for white settlers. Like there isn't that infrastructure, that communication lines or anything like that. Like they're just out in the woods making towns <laughs> like, um, and she's successfully doing this. Yeah. Just incredible. So she ended up dying, uh, just at the early part of the 20th century. She died in 1906. Um, and I actually found Long life. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, 1822 to 1906. So, It's a long time. It's a pretty healthy life, (laughs) especially for the time, again, too. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, she did see the turn of the century, and her obituary um, was actually run in the Frankenmuth News in 1906. And there's this really great quote that I think really sums her up quite well. A most lovely woman, highly educated, with a kindly disposition, and was loved and respected by all, especially the sick, to whom she was a mastering angel having been called to their bedsides when medical men of any description were scarce in the wilderness and as the years passed, became noted as a midwife. So that was uh, printed in a story called Death of a Pioneer in the Frankenmuth News on October 18th, 1906. Mm. That's a fitting title. Narrated by Malcolm (laughs) Carlton. (laughs) <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> All right. So uh, that's kind of our local heroes. Just a couple uh, really interesting historical figures that we really thought were worth uh, a little bit more attention that maybe don't get as much attention as some other figures that we've talked about in the past, like Lohi, who has this kind of domineering presence and whatnot. So let's go back around the circle. And uh, yeah, I just like open discussion, guys. Who's a, a historical figure that you really admire, look up to, and you think deserves a little bit more limelight? Um, Nathan, why don't we bounce back to you, actually? Let's go reverse
2: order here. And uh, Nathan, what do you got for us today? So the figure I want to talk about today is Carlton Moss. So you two, maybe you've heard of him? Probably not. Not Only from you. (laughs) (laughs) Only from me. Well, you've been doing some research then. So um, I bring in Carlton Moss because he was actually not just for what I've learned about him himself, but also kind of how he helped me through grad school. Um, in a very indirect way, so Carlton Moss was an African American filmmaker, teacher, um, educator, scriptwriter. He d- he did so many things during his lifetime, um, but he's probably most famous for writing and starring in the film. It's called The Negro Soldier. So this was a film uh, created by the Army actually during World War II um, in 1944. And it was one of the first films to truly depict African-Americans in a positive light. And now, mind you, this is at a time when the military is segregated still. And so to have a film of this capacity backed by the army, right, is a major statement. Um, And so... Carlton Moss was kind of at the forefront of this film, right? And so he actually had a lot of struggles when trying to put this film together, produce it. Um, He had a lot of pushback of certain things. Um, For example, you'll notice in the film, um, no African-Americans are depicted with guns um, because, strangely enough, you didn't want – or some people feared just the image of black people with guns was – Problematic. Um, Carlton Moss really pushed up uh, or pushed back against a lot of this, Um, but in the end, he he sort of he actually thought about whether he should quit or not because he was so concerned with these issues, right? But he decided to stay the course. Um, He thought it would be better if you know if if he quit, they might just hire some other white guy to fill in for him. And he didn't want that. He wanted to tell the story of African-Americans in the military um, himself. He wanted to make sure it was an African-American doing that. And so he not only um, produced that film, The Negro Soldier, but he put forth a lot more um, educational films like really some basic stuff for like youth, especially. Um, Like one I can remember is like a a dentistry sort of thing, just like a fun thing for kids to learn about dental health and stuff like that. Um, He ended up teaching at Fisk University um, into his old age. And so Carlton Moss is just a really fabulous figure. Um, And he's one that I love because he shows the different ways um, in which African Americans have sort of had to push for equality in this country. Um, he actually coined this term called cultural emancipation. So it wasn't this so much of a, a direct idea, right? If you think of um, ancestors pushing back in other ways, like through legislation or physically or something like that. Carlton Moss's idea was that we can influence the public's perception about African Americans and flip this negative stereotypes about them, um, You know, make them do a 180 and really just put forth a positive image. And that is what he strived to do throughout his whole life. Um, And I think he did so quite successfully. And so I wrote about Carlton Moss. I had to do a lot of research. So he actually... This is why I said at the beginning he kind of indirectly coached me through graduate school through like his own, his own uh, life experiences and stuff, and um, it was pretty fascinating. I actually, after digging for weeks and weeks um, for more information about him, I finally stumbled upon a long oral history about three hundred pages worth um, that was with just with him and one other interviewer, and it was at a library out in California. I reached out to them directly, and like they scanned it and sent me a digital copy. Like they went through all that work, um, and so it was it was just a very enriching experience for me um, to be able to do that and write it. Um, so I did write the article. It's actually in Black Camera, um, Indiana University's Press, um, a few years back, and so it's it's a really fascinating story about Moss. So
0: yeah, that's fascinating. Wow,
1: thanks so much for sharing about that. Yeah, though. no problem.
2: Yeah.
1: How about you, Garrett? Who do you got? <laughs> so mine's not quite as cool, um, but I'm going to talk to you guys about Fergie Souter. I don't expect you guys to know who he is. It's, again, back to my my love for soccer. And when I was trying to think of my own um, favorite historical figure, just someone I admire, it was really tough because there there are so many people that I admire, but then there's also like that in the back of my mind trying to think of people who are – um, who doesn't? Who don't have like a, a part of their history that's problematic and stuff like that? So that's mm. always something that kind of I struggle with. But when I started to think about it, Fergie Souter kind of represents how my interest in soccer is possible because without him, it may not soccer may not be the sport that it is today. Okay. Um, so he was. Um, there's not much written about him because he didn't really live all that long and he didn't do all that much, but, um, he was born in Glasgow, Scotland in 1857, where he trained as a stonemason and just kind of bounced around in early industrial revolution, um, England and Scotland. He, um, he made his name in history. However, by playing soccer, he started at a club in Glasgow called Partick. Today, there is a a club called Partick Thistle. They're not the same. They're separate. Um, But he became the first recognized professional soccer player. In 1878, he moved below the Scottish border to play for a Lancashire team called Darwin FC. At this time, um, soccer was a, a, well, football, as the English would call it, was a kind of a competition between the dwindling aristocracy like the the sons and daughters of like um cotton tycoons and just industrial tycoons and then it started to slowly devolve down to the working class and um at i can't remember when the fa cup which is the football association cup um was founded but up until um fergie Suter came along there had never been a working class team that had ever made any like real name for themselves in this competition and this was just a nationwide competition of teams trying to be crowned the English champion of soccer um but when he came below the border and played for Darwin FC he was officially the first professional soccer player um at the time the sport was entirely amateur which is why work or working class teams could not really do anything because they had to make their own living they couldn't they had to like kind of scrounge up money from the community to make the trips for these games. And that's why er like aristocratic and like old boys clubs teams were able to win because they just had the money and the resources to do it. Um, But so at this time, like Fergie Souter being a professional player was kind of taboo. Like they, they didn't want to bring professionalism into the game and the the way they people found out that he was a professional player is kind of kind of interesting because he came to Darwin which is the name of the town um he came there as a stonemason like it wasn't that strange that a uh, scottish person was moving below the border trying to make more or have more economic opportunity but like shortly after he moved he quit his job as a stonemason and people were like oh so you're just going to go back to scotland he's like no i'm going to keep playing soccer and they were like how? And he was, and he was like, I don't know. He said that like working with the stone in England was too hard. It was too much. It was too different from Scottish stone. Which like, hmm. I'm, I'm a cold BS. I'm sorry. Like it's all just <laughs> one island, bud. Um, but, um, so that's how people kind of found out that he was a professional soccer player. He and his friend Jimmy Love also came down from Glasgow. They were both professional players, but he really made his name when he moved to a local Lancashire rival team called Blackburn Rovers. They still exist today. But in, I think it was in 1878 or 1879, Blackburn Rovers became the first working class team to win the FA Cup. And um, Fergie Suter went on to win three more of those. But he really, the reason I um, really admire him is he made, professional soccer a thing but he also made soccer a much more um accessible sport because at the time like even today soccer is characterized as a rich kid sport but um (laughs) but at the time like he he truly opened up soccer to working class people and he Mm -hmm. made it exciting for them again because working class communities really rallied around their teams but when they'd get to that one game where they played um, where they had to play like one of the London teams, they were like, nah, why should we even go follow them? Why should we even go try to support them when they're just going to lose to the the rich kids?" So <laughs> sure. it's it, he's just he died in 1916, but he he really really lived a cool life.
2: Yeah, that's pretty fascinating, especially when you consider today. I mean, if there's any global sport in the world today, it's soccer. Yeah, <laughs> it's the world sport. Yeah. Yeah, and um, for
1: Mr. Souter to be able to kind of pave the way, if you will. Mm-hmm. And it's it's one of those things because he was he was definitely frowned upon when he was alive. He was not a very respected person. Mm-hmm. Despite, like, winning three FA Cups, he was a very hated person because he <laughs> opened the door for professionalism, mm-hmm. which, like, at the time, it's like that same thing where many artists are hated or just poor when they're alive, but once they die, people are like, this art is incredible. Yeah, and that's he, kind of the they same... They were a pioneer. You know? Yeah, that's the same sort of thing. as He, he ended up... Um, He ended up running a hotel in his later years. He like he was very, very, very like paycheck to paycheck, which everyone was at the time. But um, he was he didn't live a very notable life after his short soccer career. But it was just it's he had a historical impact beyond his years.
0: Definitely. Well, and it's funny because you think about soccer too, and this has always confused me about uh, North America, specifically the states and Canada, is how we just stop playing soccer at some point. But like everyone I know has played soccer as a kid. Like we all play in like yeah. house leagues mm-hmm. all through like elementary school mm-hmm. and middle school. And like most people play some degree of soccer into high school and then we just stop. And then we're just like, no, this, this sport doesn't
2: exist anymore. Yeah. It was up through elementary school for me until fifth grade. We had, like fort is ton of kids playing it. Like, oh yeah.
0: And they're huge leagues and they're been, very fun and yeah. you know, but yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's kind of weird. So that kind of goes to, to your point too, is like, as it's spread across the globe, it's become a very, uh, equalizing kind of game. Cause like, I think
1: everyone kind of plays it as a kid every, growing up. I'm and, pretty yeah. sure out of all the UN nations, like UN recognized nation, every single one has a football association mm-hmm. and even like, um france france has a bunch of overseas departments and they all have their own national teams that's their yeah. it this is something that i really would like to write about in my my uh historical career about how how much the sport of soccer impacts nationalism yeah and oh, it's it's time. fascinating to me just watch the world mm-hmm. cup once and, <laughs> and you
0: can be convinced of that point mm-hmm. uh and i will just shout out uh the Bucks, the Flint City Bucks. We have a team down yep. in Flint, hey, also, and we just got a women's team too. They just bought it and uh, launched a women's oh, team wow. this yeah, season. That's awesome. Uh, me and my girlfriend has season tickets to both nice. this year, so nice. If I'm not here, I'm probably going to be in a Bucks game <laughs> this summer. And hey, I'm, also, I'm stoked. Also, shout somewhere. out
1: the Canadian men's national team. They're they're making a way for themselves. They're first in the uh, national World women's, women's cup team qual- too. Yeah, like, yeah same. Yeah, the All of the Canadian, team Canadian teams have been going
0: a lot farther. Honestly, yeah, no, like yeah, Canadian teams. We we play soccer too (laughs) not just hockey (laughs) and curling Um, all right well thanks so much for sharing garrett that was that was fascinating both of you guys uh really brought some really fascinating people i hope that you will be entertained by my person uh Uh, no i will you may have heard of them um this is a uh, my my whole discussion here is going to be why doesn't this person have a movie yet that's going to be the thesis for my whole thing because this person is fascinating to me i saw a little write-up about them about a decade ago on Facebook and it was just like a bullet point of like they did all these things and I was just like why doesn't this person have a movie yet? (laughs) Like, it's ridiculous. So I'm going to talk about Robert Smalls today. So Robert Smalls was born into slavery in 1839 in Beaufort, South Carolina. His mother was also a slave, and um, nothing is known mostly of his father. Some have hypothesized that uh, his slave owner was likely his father, but it's unknown. Um, He was rented out for labor by his master. So this was something that they could do in the South, was they could, um, masters could rent out their slaves and they would be paid, but the master would collect most of that payment. So they would make like a very, very small modest amount Uh, and the master would collect it mostly because again, he was considered property that was loaned out. Um, So he eventually started working on boats and became actually quite familiar with the Carolina coastline, uh, even becoming a wheelman. So a wheelman um, is kind of, it was also referred to as kind of like a pilot of the boat. So he was driving the boat essentially. Um, However, he probably wouldn't have been bestowed this title. Um, being a black man, it's very unlikely that they would have actually called him a pilot or a, a wheelman. But that's essentially what the the work he was doing. He was trusted at that point to do that much because he had such knowledge of how ships worked and the Carolina coastline. In 1856, he married Hannah Smith, uh, a fellow slave who had two daughters already, and then they had two additional children of their own. When the Civil War broke out, he was placed as the wheelman of a converted side wheel steamer, named the CSS Planter. The planter delivered dispatches, supplies, and planted mines to protect the Charleston Harbor. Um, So, when I say placed, of course, I mean would, I don't know, Nathan, what would be the best word for this? He, uh, forced essentially, but, uh, um, required, required. I, yeah, I don't, I, I don't know enough about the civil war to know the kind of the ins and outs of like this situation necessarily. I, in, in the research, it says he was enlisted, but like obviously not conscripted. Uh, I, the, so the, yeah. Um, but basically he didn't really much have a, have a choice. The Confederacy knew that he had this knowledge. So they were like, you're going to be on the ship and you're going to help us do this basically. Um, So Robert had a lot to offer uh, the Confederacy because of his piloting skills and his knowledge of the harbor and the coastline. So uh, they knew he would be useful to them as a tool to uh, be able to fight the war. Now, Robert Smalls, like... Most slaves were not content being an enslaved man, and I don't think, uh, I think it's reasonable to say, did not have a lot of love for the Confederacy and the Confederacy's cause. So, in May 1862, Smalls hatched a plan with friends and family to flee the South. The planter, he found, was usually abandoned by officers overnight, so they would dock and leave it abandoned overnight and then pick it up the next morning. And he felt that he had enough knowledge, and he was able to convince... And he was confident, sorry, that he would be able to steal the boat and pass through Confederate blockades and escape to the north because he had enough knowledge. So he did this uh, in the evening. They took the boat along with four cannons that had been on the boat um, just because that's what they were transporting was these four big cannons. And Robert knew the hand signals and the customs to be able to pretend to actually be the captain of the boat and get them out of the the, uh, the Carolina Harbor. So they were actually able to steal a boat in the middle of the day, a Confederate boat, sail it, out of the harbor, through heavily fortified Confederate lines, and they just sailed away with the
2: Confederacy boat. Boston Tea Party's got nothing on Robert Small. No, like,
0: like <laughs> okay, so why does this man not have a movie? <laughs> like, like, holy crap, it's just incredible. And so then Robert successfully freed nine families, including his own, which is just incredible. And this stunt earned him a $9,000 bounty from the Confederacy. Wow. What a bam. <laughs> 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 so he then helped the war effort for the union. He was able to um, donate the ship to the union um, and they accepted it and they actually used his knowledge to get this, take the ship back and, and using his knowledge of where the, all the mines that had been placed while he was on the ship then disarm those mines and help them be and placed just,
1: Trojan horse just, like, like,
0: like, a, like a reverse Trojan <laughs> yeah. horse kind of thing like they stole the horse out and then like put an insider on and then sent the horse back like, yeah I don't, like it's just crazy like he steals the ship from right under their noses and then goes back and basically just re-engineers all the work he did for them like it did, did he go back on the boat
2: yes he was back on it when he was back on the mines.
0: same boat oh. because the boat guess. became the the SS planter, because mm. it was the Confederacy SS mm. planter, and then it became the SS planter, and he was on the boat doing all of the like the mine sweeping and disarming these mines so that the union could come down. Let's think of that moment when he brought
2: the Confederate ship to the Union. It's just
0: Hey guys. <laughs> so he showed up, and obviously they had a Confederate flag. He brought he pulled the flag down and he put up a white flag, and apparently mm. it was a very Tense standoff where they mm. really didn't know if they could trust him or not. But as soon as he was able to be given a map, he was able to start showing them where things were and what uh, he could offer them. Mm. And they agreed to then let the nine families into the North uh, to be freed. And then he pretty much apparently immediately was just like, okay, let's go back and <laughs> do some damage. Wow, wow. <laughs> so in total, during the, the Civil War, he was in 17 naval conflicts over the course of the Civil War after he freed himself. Um, in addition, he advocated for hiring of black men in the Union Army and helped form the first all-black regiment that fought in the Civil War, which is pretty awesome. Uh, he was named the first black captain of an American warship, which was the SS um, Planter, the ship he, he freed, and. Uh, shot Shockingly, after the war, he actually went back to Beaufort and uh, where he fought, um, he actually, (laughs) he moves back to Beaufort and he has um, money in his pocket now because the Union actually paid him for his service. That was a bit of a a contentious issue for a little bit because he was technically never conscripted. It was sort of a word of mouth thing from a captain that he would fight for them, so he had to actually fight for a... um, Uh, a military pension, but eventually they did give it to him. So he was able to return to Beaufort with money in his pocket. And it just so happens that his master had defaulted on his house because uh, of refusal to pay his taxes. So Robert Smalls bought his owner's house. Boom. Just, Why does this man not have a movie? Yeah, okay. No <laughs> like, like, just oh man, I can't even imagine
1: like just being able to do something like that. Like just that's just crazy. Imagine if he hired his owner as like a, a housekeeper. Like it'd be wild. Well, and and he you know
0: he did actually. I think I read somewhere that he actually. Um, his master's mother, I think, when she got really old, he actually allowed her to stay in the house and like live out her days, but like under his supervision essentially. So like, yeah, just just kind of nuts type of stuff like that. But like, that's Robert Smalls. He just did it. So, um, and in addition to in Beaufort, he actually also established a school for black children to help uh, black children become educated. So then, in this period of uh, reconstruction that was happening, obviously after the Civil War, uh, he decided to get really involved. Uh, he advocated for um, black men uh, to get in involved in legislature and helped shape the new direction of the country. And he was elected to the state house and the Senate of South Carolina, which is pretty crazy. And obviously these were very difficult times. He received a lot of uh, threats and uh, the rumors and uh, different kinds of things were spread about him, but he stayed the course. He really knew what he wanted to do. So despite, um, all of this, he was actually then even elected to the U.S. House of Representatives in 1874. Um, and despite his levels of achievement, like I said, his time in office was quite difficult. Uh, he uh, There was a lot of rumors uh, circulated about him, a lot of controversies, but uh, you know, he knew what he wanted to do. And he was actually also the first um, black man to have a U.S. Naval Army vessel named after him. Uh, which is, uh, also pretty cool. So there's a long list of accolades that he, uh, that are to his name, but, uh, just kind of an incredible, incredible person. Uh, he did, uh, eventually die in 8, 1915. So, uh, so he also was able to see the 20th century, which is, uh, pretty crazy. Um, you know, yeah, yeah, he lived all the way to the, basically the beginning of world war one, like, um, from, from the civil war, like how crazy is that? Um, but uh, yeah, that's been uh, that's a little bit of information on Robert Smalls, a man who I think more than deserves a couple movies. Very, like, inspirational. we need a movie on this guy. Holy, mm-hmm. crap.
2: like very just, inspirational. What a guy! Eh? I think he also led one of the first kind of mass boycotts for like against segregation in South Carolina mm-hmm. too. Like,
1: because that was one of my one of my questions. Because he he was elected to all those. Um, public servant positions during the time when um, there was like direct US military presence in South Carolina, making Mm -hmm. sure that African Americans could vote and, and things like that. So that was kind of one of my questions is how how that went, but you answered it with saying like he had a very tough time in office and it's just,
0: he did. Yeah. Um, and eventually like he was able to go to the, to the national stage too. Um, Mm. which I think just kind of shows how he was just a very convicted individual. Like, you know, he just stuck to his convictions and didn't let anyone tell him what he could or couldn't do. Um, and, and, you know, you know, and he, sometimes he had to work backwards too. Like I said, with his, uh, with his military pension and his back pay, um, you know, he had to fight for that. He, that wasn't just given to him. They tried to kind of, you know, um, catch him. Uh, I guess you, you could say catch him in a little bit of a loophole. Of like he was never officially conscripted, so he's not technically owed any of this money. But um, yeah, no, he just stuck to his stuck to his guns, stole some guns, uh, <laughs> and just wow, just what a what an amazing figure. I think, yeah, uh, yeah he just deserves a movie. Oh, so nice. I want to ask you guys before we just uh, wrap up real quickly here: mm-hmm. Why, um, you know, we've been talking about historical figures and people we think are cool or admirable, and that we want to kind of just get the word out. What what are the characteristics of a historical figure that you think like deserves a statue or like, why do we deserve, like why do certain people deserve to be talked about? What do you think makes an outstanding individual that is deserving of the history books?
1: Great question. For, for me, I think I come at it with this, like sadly this Gen Z per- perspective where we've spent a lot of resources and time on honoring very big individuals, people that have, Um, have pages in a history book rather than Mm -hmm. a paragraph, and I think that um in this era where we are finding out more like detailed parts of their lives, and we're like, ah, I don't know if that um if that like fits Mm -hmm. with um the morality of the country now. Part of me feels like the characteristics that desire or like deserve a statue are a little more common than you would think. I think it's people that make a local difference, that make a difference in their local community. Um, whereas like, like any of the f- original 15 settlers deserve a statue because they created this community. They were the people that had made an impact and made a place for future generations. And I think that is just mm. um, part of like, part of history is recognizing the people that don't have pages written about them in history books. And that's why I really like um memorials to like veterans that for like small communities, like Mm -hmm. where it's just Mm -hmm. their community members that have gone out and made a difference. I think I like stuff like that. You've touched on an interesting
0: point there too, where it's, um, it's kind of more about nowadays the, the small people that do small things as opposed to, um, I don't know, we have this very traditional sense of history, you know, to like, well, you know, Napoleon was a great military leader. (laughs) Julius Caesar was a great military leader. Churchill, you know, like these these traditional like life-changing kind of, like world-changing kind of figures. But I think there is something to be said about anyone that you can find throughout history where they realized that there was a right thing to do and they had the gumption and the fortitude to do it. Right. To me, like, those are the people we're celebrating as when they had an opportunity to not do something or to do something and they chose to do something. Like, yeah, that's that's cool. Those are the people that like uh, Robert Smalls for example, he could have freed himself and his nine families and that would have been a huge accomplishment in and of itself. Phenomenal. And then he could have left up farther north as he could go and lived a nice and happy life, but he realized that his struggle couldn't only be his. He had to actively do something to participate in the freeing of even more people and doing the right thing in terms of like turning around and saying, Hey, I know where all these mines are. Let's go clear them so that this army can win so that black people are no longer enslaved. Like that's a big decision. That's a, that's a life altering decision, but he had it in front of him, and he chose to do it. That's pretty amazing to me.
2: Yeah, and just, like Gareth said, talking about the impact of individuals um, and talking about just kind of these ordinary people who these stories were starting to recover and know more about, right? So, good job, social historians, as well, to be uncovering these figures that we haven't known that much about before, so...
0: Yeah. Guys, this has been a great discussion. Thank you so much. Um, It was really fun hearing uh, who you selected for our discussions. And I definitely have some reading to do uh, after this, I think. As always, thank you so much for tuning in to this episode and checking out the podcast. Be sure to like and follow us on Spotify so you can be notified when new episodes drop. And if you have time, leave us a review and a rating so we know how we are doing. Until next time, this is the Historians and Later Hoser saying, I'll be the same.